Well, thank you very much, Steve, and a very happy Saturday afternoon, everybody. It's 106. Hi, I'm John Hansen. Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, is just around the corner. Boy, a real quiet week in the legal world, huh? <laughs> I wonder what we could talk about here today. There's only there's nothing really going on. I'm really glad when I looked at the calendar, it was a week that Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers is going to be coming on. Mike Leonard is a federal defense attorney. So we've got someone on that's had some um, experience dealing with the federal government who can maybe make some sense of the biggest law story of the, what, week, month, year, perhaps? Uh, we'll also have uh, Clint Krisloff coming on a little bit later on. He does some really fascinating casework. It's something we really haven't talked much on this show since we started last year about class action lawsuits. I have no idea how they work. I see those commercials all the time. Has this ever happened to you? Call us. Sometimes I think it's a scam. Sometimes I have no idea what it was. But then I got a Facebook check a couple months ago, and I was so excited. So we'll break that all down on a busy show this Saturday afternoon on WGN. We got a busy show for you here today. Of course we do, after everything that's been happening with the FBI and the Department of Justice and President Trump. We'll get to some of that. I, I really want to hear from Michael Leonard, who's will be our first guest in just a few minutes, just about the process of how it all works. The show's not about punditry and trying to figure out but read the tea leaves too much. This is a show that we just look at things from a legal perspective. And if you have any questions about this, you can text them in, 312-981-7200, or call in, and Michael Leonard will uh, try and break it down for us. I just kind of want to get to the, the who, what, where, when, how, why, the facts, what we know, as opposed to what we think we might know, as we hear a lot on uh, wherever we uh, seem to watch stuff. Okay, uh, we also are going to be talking about class action lawsuits, all sorts of things. I do have a question of the day today, so 312-981-7200. Get ready to call in with this. Here it is. In 1998, one of the most consequential and expensive court proceedings was decided. It involved the attorney general, attorneys general, excuse me, of 46 states, five U.S. territories, and the District of Columbia. What was the case about? All right, so go back in time. What was that, 34 years ago? 24 years ago? 24 years ago. One of the most consequential and expensive court proceedings was decided involving the attorneys general of 46 states, five U.S. territories, and D.C. What was it about? 312-981-7200 if you have any guesses. We'll start today with one legal story that made uh, made, uh, caught my eye and involves Nicki Minaj. I have a Google alert set for Nikki. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I saw that uh, Mattel is suing the maker of a company called Rap Snacks out of L.A., alleging that it's Nicki Minaj-branded barbecue honey truffle potato chips violate Mattel's trademark rights in the famous Barbie doll. Mattel said it never gave Rap Snacks or Nicki Minaj permission to use their trademark. Barbecue spelled B-A-R-B-I-E, if that wasn't clear. Barbecue honey truffle. Uh, and they're also looking for money damages, including profits from barbecue sales. Mattel declined to comment on the lawsuit. Nicki Minaj not a defendant in the case. Her label, Universal Music, didn't respond to a request. The rapper has long used Barbie as part of her persona. 
And so that's interesting. It is spelled the same. It's clearly not the same as what Barbie dolls are, and it has to do with potato chips. So does that trademark of B-A-R-B-I-E in another context still hold water? I don't know. We'll have to find out. 312-981-7200 if we got any guesses to the question of the day. And uh, boy, we got a lot of them. Let's go to Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How's your day going? Good. All right. So 1998, take me and tell me what was the expensive class action lawsuit that was settled? Tobacco settlement? Yes. And boy, the first one right out of the gate, we got an answer to the question of the day today. Yes. The largest class action lawsuit ever in U.S. history. It uh, was an agreement reached between the four largest cigarette manufacturers in the U.S. and the attorneys general of 46 states. And I mentioned the five territories in D.C. And that required tobacco companies to pay out more than $206 billion to the 25, uh, to the, excuse me, the 46 states over 25 years and $9 billion per year forever. A couple states didn't sign on. They had their own tobacco settlements. They were the only four not to sign on. Congratulations, Rebecca. You get the you get the uh, WGN t-shirt, okay? Thank you. All right. Rebecca, coming on in. And Randy, Brian, sorry, you guys called too, just weren't first. I guess that one was a little too easy. That's okay. We'll come up with a, another one next week uh, for our question of the day. All right, let's take a break. And then we're going to have Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers after this to discuss not only what happens in the news, but a bunch of other stories, too, here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois Bar Association. 720 WGN. Oh, I was so happy when I found out Mike Leonard was coming in here today. Mike, how you doing, my friend? Good, John. How are you? Good. You're a federal defense attorney. Yes. And done some other great things as well and busy things. So you are someone, you're a great guest to have today. That's where I'll, that's John, what I'll that's say. John, that's a great start. I love that start. A great introduction. But more importantly, I think the viewers want to know, what are you doing this weekend? What am I doing this yeah. weekend? What are you doing for fun? Oh, man. Clean the house this morning a little bit. Wow, that doesn't sound like fun. I'm going to go. Uh, a buddy from out of town is is coming in, and uh, we're all meeting him uh, at the uh, casino. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah, that'll be a little Are fun. Are you a low roller or a high roller? Low. About as low as it gets. <laughs> Me too. Low Me and too. slow, like a good uh, pork uh, butt. That's yeah. what you got to do. I hate giving my money away. I like playing a little bit of blackjack, but it mm. always goes so fast, and I'm always cashed out uh, almost immediately. I, I do roulette. I spread 10 little chips around. And then you can kind of make some, lose some, and then it's just, you know, I can't host a financial show on this program and then go spend a bunch of money That'll be and a bad say idea. I know what I'm doing, right? Maybe you can teach me roulette sometime, though. Maybe. Oh, it's really I, easy. I, re- I still don't understand. It looks like a lot of fun on TV and in the commercials, but I don't think it really is. <laughs> it's not. You just, most of it's waiting for the person to stack the chips. Anyways, um, that's what I'm doing this week. <laughs> okay. Thanks well, for diving yeah, think, into that. I think your viewers want to know, John. Yeah. You know? No, they're, 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 always, they're always curious. That's the most common text we get. No. Okay, so this was obviously a historic week. Not very often you have the FBI uh, uh, executing a search warrant uh, on the former president's estate. And I don't want to dive too deep into the realm of what we don't know, right? Because that's a dangerous game to play, isn't it? Sure. Uh, But, you know, this whole situation has kind of a long history to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to talk about that first. Well, what what specifically are you talking about? Well, so first you got to go back in time uh, many months where it was originally uh, determined by the National Archives when they received a bunch of boxes from the president, 15 boxes, that in those boxes there were a bunch of top secret and highly classified materials, mm-hmm. which, which was sort of set off alarm bells. Okay. So then fl- fast forward to June of this year, um, you actually had uh, two things happen which are of note. Um, one was a subpoena was issued to the president 
to produce you know documents that he had that he still had that mm-hmm. were top secret or of certain classifications and also the second thing was you know members of the justice department law enforcement went to mar-a-lago and saw that there were you know boxes of additional materials had discussions about what might be in them how are they locked or not locked how are they maintained who has access to them and so the subpoena didn't yield compliance you know the reality is if if i had a client john smith mm-hmm. and someone gave him a subpoena for top secret documents that they thought he had at his house because he used to work at the white house and he didn't comply there'd be no question that they would go in you know immediately to a judge and try to get a search warrant and try to get them back so if it was any other person you'd say this is not, nothing unusual about what we've seen so far oh correct so you're you're the real the difference is is the person so yeah President Trump, who's a former president, but think about this. If there were any of the hundreds of people who worked in the White House, if they had these materials, top secret, highly classified documents, sensitive, allegedly relating to national defense in some instances, nobody would have any issue or problem with Joe Smith or Tom Brown or Jane Doe um, saying, hey, you can't have these things. You got to give them back. So the difference really is the the recipient of the subpoena. Which does make a difference. I know equal uh, application of the law to everyone, but the president of the United States does have the authority to declassify as he wishes. I know that his camp is contending that last night I heard that anytime he brought documents to the residents, that was in fact an act of saying these are declassified. I guess what I'm saying is it's a lot of nuance, not only because he was the former president, but because there is this potential declassification right, the ultimate right that he has. Sure, which is, I, I like it. It's a clever defense, but to say that just because I take documents are highly classified or top secret and I take them out and I'm not supposed to have them, but I, but I do that, that so, somehow transforms them into unclassified materials or declassified. That's a very tough sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but ultimately, you know, what had to happen here is in addition to the visit to the house, then the issuance of, of a subpoena, then the alleged noncompliance with the subpoena, then they had to go to a judge. Mm-hmm. So they had to go to a judge in federal court in Florida. It was a magistrate judge. Uh, and make a showing based upon probable cause, a lower standard. You're not proving any crime has actually been committed, but you're making the argument in the affidavit in support of the search warrant that there's probable cause to believe there might be a commission of a crime. And it's and based upon the unsealing of that search warrant, it appears, appears they were trying to argue to the court that, hey, we have probable cause to believe there might be a violation of what's called the Espionage Act, there might be obstruction of justice, or there might be another violation of federal law for destroying uh, documents that are highly classified. Okay, so this is where two camps fall in, because everything's political these days. A lot of people feel like this is just step one of a bigger issue, that the documents were being sold, the documents were being destroyed, mutilated. There was some, this is relating to another investigation, and there was possible destruction. And some people on the other side say, if this is all it was, why isn't there an intermediate step between the subpoena and the FBI search? Something where they say, look, we know you have these documents in this other room. You may not know this personally, Mr. President, but here's here's where we believe they are. Come on, let, let's get them back. Well, I think that happened. I mean, based upon all that's been publicly reported, we'll, we'll never know the, the mm-hmm. whole truth here. But obviously, you don't just issue subpoena, which is just a piece of paper saying, hey, give us these various category documents. You don't do that. And then just rush in and search someone's home. So okay. you, you assume that between June and on Monday, so in those two months, there was a little bit more like, come on, 
really. We need these things. Oh, yeah. So just as, as you know, John, what happens is you issue a subpoena. Typically, anybody who receives a federal subpoena usually gets counsel. And then you have to make a written response to it, either produce the documents or make objections to the production or say that you don't have them. So it's not as if a subpoena was issued and then they just ran into his house. Right. And the important intermediary step was that then you had to make you know, a relatively significant showing to a federal court judge that, hey, here are the sets. Here's the set of facts and circumstances attested to in an affidavit of all the things we've done and everything we know. And therefore, here's why we have these concerns. There might be a commission of a crime. Now, let's go to the next step. You you said, you know, that, hey, everyone's worried that's part of a bigger plot or bigger picture. And I get it. I, I just think it'll be, I will be shocked if with regard to these documents and the, and the production of them or non-production or belated production, I will be incredibly shocked if any charges arise out of this conduct. I don't think it's going to happen. Because he's the former president or because cases like this, even with John Smith, are resolved in a more calm way? Well, because, number one, he is the former president. So, And and apparently, they've gotten the documents back. You know, the, the Justice Department would argue, finally. So that could be the end of it. Yeah, of course. Because, remember, when you go before a judge to get a search warrant, it's, you're not charging anybody with a crime. Right. You know, so that happens all the time. We represent clients all the time. For instance, I just last week, for instance, I got a call on a new case where federal agents came out from the FBI with a search warrant for someone's house and they searched the person's house. And again, to be able to do that, they had to go before a judge and make a showing that there's probable cause to believe there was a commission of a crime. The client's not charged with anything at all. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the troublesome thing to people. People think, hey, if I'm not charged with an offense, how can you go search my property? That's that's a fundamental argument that people have. But that's the whole point. If law enforcement can make a sufficient showing to a federal judge or a state court judge that they, there's reason to believe a crime's been committed and there may be fruits of the crime or evidence of the crime, then that may be enough to get the search warrant in the first instance, to go in and conduct a search. And of course, as you know, uh, then the person may or may not be charged with a crime. They may uncover a whole bunch of stuff. They may uncover nothing. But even if they uncover something, it may be months or years till a crime is even charged or not charged. So the execution of the search warrant could be the end of this. It could be, of course. I would argue, because this is such a highly politicized issue and it's a former president, I think that they're going to be satisfied with the return of the documents, and I would be shocked if there's any federal charges that arise out of this, because there would be many, many disputes. You know, the mere fact that a subpoena was issued, there'd be argument about the wording of the subpoena, whether there was compliance or substantial compliance with the subpoena, whether the non-compliance with the subpoena was intentional or not. Right. You know, you raised a good issue offline. I think you said that you had recently heard that. Yeah, let at me, least the Trump. Go ahead and yeah, tee so that one up. The news that we hear today is that in June, uh, at least one lawyer of President Trump had signed off that all the un, uh, all the classified documents were no longer at Mar-a-Lago, were no longer in possession. Uh, and according to what we see from the receipts, that's not necessarily the case of what was pulled out of the, the search warrant. So I wonder, and, and this begs an even larger issue, President Trump has many people employed for him, lawyers. He didn't move all these boxes himself. He has handlers that do all this stuff. Is it possible he simply did not know where these things were? And I think that speaks to your idea of knowingly 
lying to uh, the Justice Department? Or could a lawyer have just said, yeah, yeah, they're all gone and not consulted with former President Trump on that? And that's the lawyer's mistake, not the former president's. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of defenses here, John. That's what I'm saying. Number one, there's a lot of nuance here. You know, when you issue some a subpoena, there's arguments over the wording in the subpoena. You know, you're going to. You, the subpoena may be very broadly focused. It may be very narrowly focused. You may have an argument you complied in good faith. You may have an argument that you provided the information to your counsel who you thought complied in good faith. Um, typically, you know, I, I doubt the president, the former president, signed anything. I'm sure there was a representation right. made by counsel. Hey, here's our response to the subpoena. Good. It wasn't President Trump likely signing anything, attesting to anything under oath. Which is right. Yeah, of course. And I, I, I'm saying that's why there's a wide chasm to have a lot of defenses to the argument that, that he m- misappropriated them intentionally or knew that he had them intentionally. So we can argue about that all day. We'll never know the truth. But you're, you're making a great point. There's lots of room for a defense to this. Is there... Okay, so remember when Hillary Clinton was being investigated by the Department of Justice, and then a couple weeks before the election, maybe July before the election, Jim Comey came out and said, in an unusual say, normally we don't do this, the investigation's closed, she acted inappropriately, but there wasn't a criminal thing. Do you expect that if this is the end, and they look through all these documents, and they determine, hey, we got our documents back, that's what we wanted, we're done— would it be appropriate for the attorney general to say something similar or someone in the authority to say something similar to end speculation about what could or could not be coming next? Sure. Yeah, he could absolutely choose to do that. This is a highly politicized issue. It's very divisive in terms of the country. It's going to be hard to prove if they wanted to bring federal charges. I I just don't think they will bring any federal charges. I mean, the whole point, I think, here was getting the documents back. But then isn't that a lot of hay to... To make in the news, to make in everything for some boxes of documents. Well, well, John, you're talking about stuff that's top secret. So I I'm, mean, I'm coming up yeah. with defenses that yeah, other yeah. people would come up. I'm trying to. F- oh yeah, to see but this I mean, down the middle. But, but I guess you know, from the defense standpoint, I think it's a highly defensible situation. If I was representing former President Trump, but on the other side of the coin, of course, if you're federal law enforcement and you know, then obviously in the they had they had present an affidavit to the judge, mm-hmm. not just. Not just, you know, make generalizations. So they had to present a detailed affidavit to say, here's why and here's the base upon which we believe there's still materials there and probably some idea of what those materials were. Okay. But you, you certainly wouldn't want somebody to have top secret documents that number one, can be the subject of espionage by another country to try to get them. Right. right? And then- or used or used by a former political figure. For, you know, I'm not saying he's going to or would, but use for inappropriate means, you know, so. I I wouldn't want top secret documents in anyone's home or residence in general, right? That's susceptible, regardless of who the former president is. I just, a lot of people, I think, may be disappointed if that's the end of it. Maybe then that's because they are vindicted if they don't like the former president, et cetera, et cetera. We'll, we have to take a break. Okay. Right. I got a lot more sure. questions. We got other things to get to, too. All good. All good. Mike Leonard. All right. Let's take a break for the news here on WGN. 720 WGN. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We're trying to find nuance and clarity in a very complex and political discussion. I'm being called names on the text line. Mike, not you, though. They love you. <laughs> Good, John. A lot of, let the guests do the speaking. <laughs> I'm just trying to find the arguments on both sides of this thing, because it is complex. And we had someone text in saying, here's my problem. If it were you or me, everyday folks that had um, 
possession of these documents, these top secret documents, would be treason or a violation of the Espionage Act, I guess. But it is nuanced here. Yeah, well, that bothers me, too. I mean, as a defense lawyer, especially in the federal system, I don't believe that justice is blind. You know, I think there's a lot of prejudicial factors, intentional, unintentional, that go into decisions to charge someone with a crime, who to charge, who to select for prosecution. So I agree with whatever viewer said that, that if it's Joe Schmo, Mm -hmm. who was a clerk at the White House, worked in the Oval Office, and whatever job he held, whether it was bringing tea to the president or in the most important meetings, if that person had top secret documents in their home and people had reason to believe he did and they didn't comply with the subpoena, nobody would have any feelings for the person. I go, it's so unfair. You're being targeted to return those classified materials. So I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tough argument to make just because he's a former president. Uh, I think you still have that same obligation and you would be treated quite differently if you're an average citizen. If you're an average citizen, I'd say there's a hundred percent chance you will get charged with a federal crime. For I having think, done for, for having, having done, done exactly what happened here. But I'll tell you, John, I'll come back on the show one year from, from now or two years from now, and I'm gonna bet you that large pizza that you love that Trump will not be charged federally for this incident that's my bet because, because he's the former president because he's the former president and so that i have a problem with that but i think that's what will happen so everyone being up in arms that he's going to get charged or it's part of a larger investigation against him i don't buy it i think that it was a standoff between the attorney general and the former president basically from the department of justice's standpoint saying hey this guy's thumbing his nose at us we know he has the stuff he won't give it to us we're going to go get it we're going to get a judge to tell us we can go get it. I think that's what happened. So I know people think, who, especially people who like Trump, who voted for Trump, they think he's this is part of a larger investigation. He's going to get charged. I don't think that he will. I don't think it's going to happen. But I do agree if it was an average citizen, 100% they'd get charged. Uh, 224 just chimed in. I thought I'd heard somewhere that all presidents have brought home material that should have been left at the White House, even some that have brought home classified paperwork. The records department that does all this, the archivists, in specific, and I'm just speaking about President Obama because that was brought up uh, by some folks that he had brought home $33 million or 33 million documents. The department that does this says they were first checked by the archivist. Everything was checked before it was released to President Obama. That's a different distinction than what allegedly happened here. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't personally don't know enough about that nuance. Yeah. I, I know from what's been publicly reported that presidents do and are allowed to bring certain things home. I doubt they're allowed to bring top secret materials, especially those that relate to national defense and things of that nature. And I'm sure there's a process, a vetting process, which happened here. You know, as we know, months and months ago, the National Archives went through 15 boxes that they retrieved back from the president. And in those, that's where the issue first got raised. Hey, you have all these things you can have, but there's all these other materials that are top secret, which you can't have. And I think that's what's caused this whole thing to start in the first place. So many people say, though, if the FBI shows up at your house, you're in a lot of trouble. John, unless you call me. <laughs> um, what's well, that number, by the way, I, since you said it? 312-380-6559. Give me a go. call. No, I'm joking. But look. If the FBI shows up, FBI shows up at your house, either with especially with the search warrant, things are not looking good for you. There's no question about that. And even if they show up at your house just to question you, uh, you would never really want to answer those questions if you ask me. But yeah, things aren't looking good if you're the average citizen. If someone shows up from law enforcement, federal or state, with a search warrant for your home, you know things aren't looking good at that point. It doesn't mean 
first of all, it does mean you've been charged with a crime and doesn't mean you're going to be charged with a crime, but certainly uh, statistically the odds are against you in terms of the, what's going to happen in the future, whether you're going to be charged because they had to go before a judge and make some sort of showing that there's probable cause to believe a crime had been committed and there's some reason to search because there's something relating to that crime is in that location. Look, we know, certainly and I know very well, because I have to file these motions all the time, there's lots of motions where are called what motions to suppress evidence based upon wrongful, illegal, unconstitutional searches. It happens, unfortunately, all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're in court over those motions a lot. And so sometimes someone gets charged, and one of the issues at the beginning of the case is a motion to suppress, arguing that the search was improper. And like you and I talked about a couple of months ago, in the rare instance in federal court, uh, that may be granted. And we had the case we talked about a couple of months ago where mm-hmm. a client was released and all charges were dropped because the court determined after a full evidentiary hearing that the search was entirely improper of someone's home and unconstitutional. So these issues aren't unique to Trump. They, they happen all the time in the federal system and definitely in the state system, too. Okay, so you're one of the few people out there that at least I've been watching that say, this is likely the end of the, or could be the end of the road, right? The FBI went in, they got the documents that the Department of Justice wanted. Okay, we're all moving on with our lives. We're not going to charge, it's too politically involved. I think that is the one thing that could actually unite people in anger against the Department of Justice. People on the right would say, what an overreach of the of the government to get some boxes that were sitting around in storage that didn't mean anything to, to to the president or whatever the case. They mean a lot, of course, in terms of state secrets. That's an argument that someone might make. Well, the, 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 and, yeah. excuse me, let me finish. Yeah. And people on the left are going to be so upset that that's that that they would create this much hubbub and and present as if there's this is part of a larger thing, and then that's that's it. Yeah, but you you also have to look at it from the standpoint. So there's a huge difference between a search warrant, which is a probable cause standard, right? A low threshold. Just to a judge, hey, we have probable cause to believe a crime has been committed, okay, versus proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is actually guilty of the crime. And so, you know, especially if you were going to go under this Espionage Act, you'd have to make some showing that there was purportedly an intent to use these documents against the purposes of the United States, which would be very tough to That's prove. tough. Yeah, very tough to prove. So, you know, you might have an argument that, there is obstruction of justice. But again, John, we get into that all that nuance you talked about earlier where there was attorneys involved. There were negotiations. So there's a lot of room for a robust defense that, you know, there was an attempt to comply and there would have been compliance or they're in a process of complying. So there's a huge difference between proof beyond a reasonable doubt and just a probable cause to go in and conduct a search. Yeah, you leave me thinking. Mike. I guess that's the good part about our discussions here. I think I'm we're more, both thinking. We're both thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities out there. I just, I just can't. And this is more of a political calculation, which I know the Department of Justice is not supposed to do. But we're all humans, including Merrick Garland. I, I just, it feels a lot. It feels like a lot for what was, uh, what some people would argue was clerical or bookkeeping. I don't think that. I think that top secret documents are not okay to have in your home. Um, unless you had gone through the formal process of, of allow, being allowed to have them, which I don't think, I don't, at least my evidence has show that. But it seems like a lot for, at the end of the day, a little, perhaps. Well, yeah, but here's the problem. We're, we're never going to know what those documents were, okay? Mm-hmm, right. We're going to get 
a general description of the categories they were seeking and some specifics. We've already gotten some disclosure about what some of them were. We're never going to know. So does it even matter? I mean, I mean, no, but I mean, just in terms of what the public's perception would be and what people would think. John, if I if I told you, hey, you know, the the documents were the codes to how to, uh, you know, send nuclear missiles. People would be quite upset with that versus whether there's intelligence on some foreign government that's people would consider immaterial. You know, who knows? So there's a lot of room uh, to debate here because there's so much based upon speculation. We're, we're never going to know as the public what the documents were unless there's a trial. And we probably still wouldn't know because it would be conducted in a certain way as to not disclose those state secrets. So I get it. I get both sides. I get the argument that, hey, if you conducted a search warrant, why don't you charge him with a crime? But let's not forget there's a completely different standard. And you said, you know, that this would be a political decision made not to prosecute. But the decision to prosecute or not to prosecute is made all the time. You know, mm-hmm. we have clients that we defend in federal court. And a lot of times you make the strong argument, wow, why, why did this he or she get charged? You know, here's the whole case. And X, Y, Z, these other people did horribly more or mm-hmm. were the more the ringleaders or masterminds of whatever the crime or fraud was. And they're not even charged at all. And they may just be cooperators against your own client. So these prosecutorial decisions are made on a daily basis throughout the country. And when it's your client or yourself or your family member, you often think it's very unfair that your person got charged or you got charged because someone's exercising discretion. Again, no case is brought without the use of discretion, even to bring a case to a grand jury to let a grand jury decide if charges are going to be brought, right? So there, there's a lot that goes into this that is very discretionary. Okay. 312-981-7200 if you have any questions. We'll get into some other stuff as well, uh, if you, unless you have any more questions about this, because I've, I've got about a billion, but I want to move on to other things. After this, on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Leonard Trial Lawyers, Leonard at Trial Lawyers. Dot com. Okay, let's talk about the uh, a court ordering the University of Chicago and University of Chicago Police Department to go to trial. I think this is a case that a lot of people remember from a couple of years ago. Yeah, if you remember, John, the facts are this. So there was a young man who's the plaintiff in this case, bringing in the lawsuit, who was a senior at University of Chicago, had, had a nice academic career, had no prior involvement in law enforcement, no criminal history. And he had a mental health crisis during his senior year and just sort of deteriorated. And then one night, you know, really kind of went off the rails, so to speak, because of his mental health issues and went outside and was walking around and uh, creating, uh, you know, yelling and things of that nature. And so the University of Chicago police responded and then they shot him. And so, you know, we brought the lawsuit on his behalf, um, arguing that they used excessive force. Uh, and what we're talking about is not, there's no secrecy here this is part of a judge's opinion that was just released uh in july ordering those defendants to go to trial so the lawsuit was brought against the university of chicago itself its police department and then the individual officer who shot the plaintiff luckily he did survive right and now he's out in california doing well in his in his uh career endeavors but obviously this was a traumatic couple of years not only the injury of getting shot but then a couple of years of rehab and going through all the court proceedings because they charged him with a crime. Uh, and all those charges were essentially eventually dismissed against him. So what happened recently was the judge 
issued an opinion in the context we've talked about sometimes in these civil cases called summary judgment. Mm-hmm. And real brief, not to get too technical, even though this is a this is very a, legal show, Right, John, for sure. But when we get into the weeds here, maybe. Exactly. When you're representing a plaintiff in a case against a company or against the police or whoever, you want to be able to get your case to a jury. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people think, hey, if I file a lawsuit, I get a jury trial, you know, I get to go. You don't, because what happens is you take all these depositions first, and then what happens is the defendant usually files this motion before there can be a trial and tries to knock your case out of the box and argue that it should be dismissed, that what's called summary judgment should be granted against your client. So that's what happened here. University of Chicago and the police department tried to get out of the case. The judge wrote a lengthy opinion and said, no, this case needs to go to a jury. The jury has to decide whether the officers and the University of Chicago Police Department acted improperly used excessive force under the circumstances and you know the judge pointed out in the opinion that when the officer who shot him saw him in the alley from quite a distance he made the statement to the effect that we've got a mental so mm. clearly they he knew, knew something was up yeah, they knew he was suffering from mental health crisis but unfortunately you know proceeded to go through a series of steps which resulted in this gentleman getting shot so um, from our standpoint, of course, it's always a good day when the court rules in our favor and says you get to go to trial. So that case will be tried, you know, sometime next year. So we're looking forward to that. You got a case coming up in St. Louis, yeah? Yes, uh, we got. And I think we mentioned this we did. We talked about many it. months ago. Yeah. And it, to remind you and the viewers, it, it arises out of what was the top ranked reality TV show on Oprah's network years ago. It was on TV for about five or six years. And uh, it was called Welcome to Sweetie Pies, which is a St. Louis-based restaurant, several of them, which serves some fantastic food, John. That's a whole other subject. Okay, yeah, we'll have to get to that. Yeah, we will. But what happened in this case is the the feds have charged a number of individuals, including my client, who was one of the key members of that television show, in what they claim to be a murder-for-hire plot. So that case is going to trial on September 6th in federal court in St. Louis. And I know you and I were talking about kind of some of the things that go into yeah. trying a case in a different jurisdiction. I know you wanted to touch upon that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, what what is different than here in, in Illinois down in St. Louis? Well, it's, it's not so much that it's St. Louis, but anytime you're in a different federal court or a different state court and you're in Missouri or New York or California, you know, everything can be quite different. So uh, number one, you know, you, you don't have that familiarity with your judge and that sort of credibility with the judge because you haven't been in front of them very much you don't quite know how they act and how they rule so you try to get as much intelligence as you can is this your first time in this courtroom in in this yeah in this in this jurisdiction i've had cases in in federal court missouri but in front of this uh judge and in in this particular federal court yeah this is this will be the first one um but i've had you know federal court trials you know in federal court cases all over the country but every case is different and so you got the issue of who your judge is and kind of how they rule how they run their courtroom then you have the issue which is a huge issue in any case is the juror pool 100 right and we've talked about that here in chicago how people think if you have a case in federal court in downtown chicago that you're going to have a, a certain racial or gender uh, makeup mm-hmm. which doesn't match up to what you think because the jury pool goes way out to all the way to wisconsin right. all the way out to rockford so the pool you get tends to be very different of what your perception of that might be racially and age and you know occupation wise same thing in missouri so you're even though you have a case that's downtown st louis your jury pool goes way out you know mm-hmm. to an hour or more outside st louis to some very rural counties and so 
just like any other case, you got to kind of research your juror pool. You have all these different counties, all these people that you're unfamiliar with. So you're going to be doing jury selection is one of the first tasks at hand, right? And so you have to kind of bone up on what are these different counties like? You know, what what would it mean potentially to have a juror from a certain county? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What's it like to live there? Uh, what views may they have? And you're trying to, you know, use your gut, but also try to use some sense of intelligence of as much information you can gather. And then there's there's things that vary, even though it's a federal court case, even the timing upon which the federal government gives you information, the timing that they give you witness statements and grand jury testimony varies greatly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So in this case, 10 days before, we'll be getting reams of additional information. If this case were in Chicago, we typically get it 30 days before or more. So, you know, all sorts of factors go into trying a case in a different jurisdiction. Right. With the judge... Do you read like other opinions that he or she has writ, uh, written before? Do you do some research on the judge you know you've gotten? Well, the best intelligence usually, I mean, in, in, in criminal cases, federal criminal cases, you know, they wouldn't really have done a lot of written opinions except on pretrial motions, okay? So, but your, your best source of information on a judge are other lawyers yeah. in that jurisdiction who have been in front of he or she. And so talking to them um, and getting a sense, you know, people would say, hey, you could go sit in his courtroom, but... It's not very feasible these days because of COVID. You know, typically federal court judges aren't sitting there in court any day or all day unless they have a trial or a particular hearing. So you have very little opportunity to go sit in their courtroom right. and watch their demeanor. Firsthand. Uh, in the old days, you know, you could do that to some extent, but even watching them, you know, that would be helpful. But, you know, what would be much more helpful is to see how they run a trial, yeah. how they act during a trial, you know, what their style is during a trial. And you don't really get the benefit of actually seeing that. But your most useful information is from other attorneys in that jurisdiction, for instance, in St. Louis, who've been in front of that judge or know that building well. Yeah. But there's we so haven't much even that goes talked, into this. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the local food issue, John. <laughs> you know? You know, you got to you got to figure out your local ravioli down in St. Louis. You got to figure out where you're going to eat, John, which is huge. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we actually are getting a couple more questions about uh, our first topic about President Trump and and that. Let's go back to more. Absolutely. Um, This is from John down in Central Illinois. Spelled the same way I spell my name. So thank you, John. Uh, Comment. Getting back to the documents. Getting back to documents is the easy part. Determining if someone took a picture of the documents with a smartphone, did anything with those. That seems to be more difficult to prove. Agree, I assume? Totally. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many issues that arise, and there's so many concerns. You know, there's there's my standpoint, which is the defense lawyer standpoint. Then there's law enforcement and national security who are looking at these issues. So I know some of the issues they're real concerned about and which caused them to, to go to the property physically in, like, June and maybe even before that. They wanted to see where are these boxes stored? You know, under what system are they stored, even though they didn't have them back yet and they hadn't even subpoenaed them yet? You know, where are these things? Who has access to them? Are they under lock and key? Because, of course, there are so many different concerns. You don't want other governments getting them. You don't want an employee right. getting them and selling them or using well, them. Well, let's not forget Mar-a-Lago had an, uh, someone that was charged years ago. Yeah. As someone that was a spy, essentially, on the inside. Exactly, yeah. I mean, your, your listener makes so many great points because, of course, you know, we'll never know what, what transpired before the documents are actually seized by the government. And, of course, there's, there's, there's an ongoing concern. But unless someone surfaces 
to tell the media, hey, I got this, or they try to sell them. We'll, we'll probably never know the answer to that question, but this is a very good point by your listener. I saw a report, um, and I know we're hearing a lot of different news reports, and some of them are verified or not, that uh, some of the documents were being fingerprint tested. That would indicate that they're trying to see who touched what, right? Sure. I mean, I, I think that would be, again, a legitimate concern. If you have something that's top secret and you have any reason to believe that they've been reproduced or given to others, uh, a normal process would be, okay, let's let's take fingerprints and let's see if they match up to anyone in the system. The, the good thing from the government standpoint is that if there are people who worked in the White House or worked for the president, they already have been printed, right? right. Their, their systems, their prints will be in the system. But if you're an average employee, you know, you may have never been fingerprinted, so you might not show up in the, data, in the databases. We're getting a couple more questions. Can you stick through the news for a few more minutes? John, as long as you want. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> two, right. three, four o'clock. Forget Dave Plyer's show. We're going through oh, it. Oh, we're going to go for hours. More with Mike Leonard after the news here on WGN. Today's show is sponsored by Leonard Trial Lawyers, Allen and Glassman Chartered, and Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. Now, here's John Hanson, and let's get legal. All right, hour two. Mike Leonard's still here. And Clint Krisloff is coming up next. Apparently, I said Clink. Uh, yeah, that's not a name. I think you were thinking of Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes. That's the only proper usage of that word, John. Yeah, is there no. any other usage of Clink? No, I don't well, think there is. Well, right. Well, if your clients do something that bad, they can go into the. Clink. Oh so yeah, yeah. And we never do that. Never. My clients never go into exactly. Clint Krislov. I am actually fascinated to learn about how class action lawsuits happen. I've never been a part of one. Or at least I thought I hadn't until I got the Facebook check, and then I was like, wait. There I go. I was part of one. How much did they pay you? 400 bucks. That's nice. That's Are nice. you kidding me? Of times, course. Times millions. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. A couple more questions, Mike, as we continue our conversation about what happened at Mar-a-Lago. Um, someone wants to know if the Department of Justice, and, and I think that we are, or at least you seem to be under the interpretation that if there were classified documents there, there's a good chance that some law may have been broken by President Trump, but he may not be charged because he's the former president. Am I, is that okay as a baseline that I'm going as, at? As a baseline, plus factor two is, you know, it, it's still, you still have to make proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So, okay. you know, and there's there's lots and lots of arguments in terms of, you know, why he didn't violate the law, especially under the Espionage Act, where, you know, you'd have to make a showing that he had the documents for the purposes of essentially using them against the United States. Not you know, just gathering mere, dust mere in a room. Mere possession wouldn't be enough. I guess what I'm saying is the Department of Justice might feel like he at least broke some law or at least has a feeling that, that he did. I'm only asking this because it has to get to the, the question that yeah, they're asking. Yeah, I agree. 815 wants to know. Then if they uh, believe that he broke a law, is are they setting a bad legal precedent if they don't charge him? Couldn't, quote, a normal person who you said would be charged for the similar crime couldn't they say, hey, the president wasn't charged in this? Or could a future president use that defense? Well, they're setting a bad public precedent by doing that, but there's there's no legally binding precedent. You know, for instance, one person one day can, you know, do the same alleged crime as somebody else and be charged or not charged. It and, happens all the time, is what you're saying. It happens all the time. And so, you know, you, you only have an argument as to what's called selective prosecution. If you can make a showing, which is really difficult to do, that are, there was a discriminatory motive on behalf of the prosecution. So it's a real high standard to show that you're selectively prosecuting somebody. I agree with the listener. Those are, that's a really good question and a really good point, because clearly there'd be a strong public argument that you're you're selectively choosing to prosecute someone and not somebody else for the same conduct. And what you're creating is a public argument to be made or a political argument that, you know, Offender number two shouldn't be charged, but the reality is there's no 
binding precedent upon any other prosecutor's office that they can or cannot charge the person. For sure. Here's an interesting text. 773. President Trump has a large team of attorneys. Could you explain why they've stated publicly that they've complied with every request for records by the FBI or the DOJ, and yet they raided his home? I guess it would be the FBI, the DOJ would say they're lying. Well, you mean that there's an audience for those statements by those attorneys. So what do you mean by that? Well, they're they're attempting, of course, to tell their sto- side of the oh, story. Oh, on the news, and yeah, such yeah. Like that. I mean, th- so those attorneys are basically saying, "Hey, look, we engage in good faith negotiations. We, in good faith, attempted to comply with subpoena. We don't know if that's true or not, mm-hmm. but clearly there were communications between the lawyers and the law enforcement members and the DOJ. So they're they're making that public argument that, hey, we did everything we could to comply." The reality is if they still had all those top secret documents, it doesn't look like they did comply. So that seems like an argument that may be extremely rebutted by the facts, but they're doing their job, which is to attempt to attempt to create a narrative in favor of the president and try to show that he acted reasonably and try to show that law enforcement acted irrationally and unreasonably and unfairly and selectively. So they're, they're really just trying to create a narrative is what they're doing. And we talked about this in the last hour, but I think it's worth saying again. And we, we don't know. We may never know exactly about this. But the idea is is that, and from the reporting we're hearing today, is at least one of uh, President, former President Trump's lawyers signed a document saying that all the classified information was gone in June out of Mar-a-Lago. And apparently that isn't the case. Um, that you contend that there's likely there were conversations between June and the raid, if, if you want to call it a raid or an execution of war, and I don't really care about the definition, that there was likely, there were attempts further between those two things. Yeah, what, what's been reported is that there were, that there was, a, there was a pre-communications before the subpoena, right? There was the subpoena, which is different than search warrants, just a document requesting production of documents. And then there was the time period they went to a magistrate judge to get the arrest warrant but it's been publicly reported that during that whole time period there were negotiations and communications with the trump lawyers the trump team and the doj and i'm, I'm sure that happened and so for a lawyer then to you know sign in writing that everything has been produced you know can be very problematic because you have a good faith obligation to investigate and make sure that the statements you're making are truthful uh, the lawyer may have been uh, informed and persuaded that everything had been produced and that the attorney may not have known that those documents existed. But, you know, if this was a normal case, uh, an attorney represented to a court, uh, if it came to that, that everything had been produced, the court would go behind that and want to know what good faith efforts did you make to undertake an investigation to see if there had been compliance with the, the subpoena. lawyer is supposed to do something. Of course, we don't we never get away with saying, oh, judge we complied oops and never happens okay right. so because if you're called on the carpet usually happens in litigation when there's a motion to compel or a motion for sanctions for not complying you have to make a rep- you have to make representations of the court about all the steps you took and sometimes that may be by providing an affidavit or a written brief or whatever this is a little different we're not in litigation you know so you had an attorney apparently responding and writing to a subpoena indicating hey Either production's complete or we don't have this category, we don't have that category, which is good for Trump because he can say, look, counsel's the one that made that response. I didn't make it, and I certainly didn't make those representations under oath. Right. So there's no crime by me. All right. I want to wrap up with this this last thought, and it was kind of the first thing you said last hour was – the idea that a lot of people think this is part one of a much larger thing. There is a 
strong possibility that the Department of Justice wanted those documents back, tried to get them through traditional means. It didn't happen. They had the FBI go get them. They are back in the Department of Justice hands. And that could be the end. Of course, that could be the end. Or they could use their discretion to decide based upon the facts as they know them and the witness interviews they've, they've conducted and all the, investig- the investigation they've done that they want to charge him. Okay, that would be within their discretion or they could take those facts to a grand jury and see if a grand jury would decide to indict him. Do I think that's going to happen again? No. And I don't, the reason why, and I do believe it's because of his position, but it's also because there'll be a difficulty in proving beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 jurors, to 12 jurors that he violated those laws. And, and, you know, again, prosecutors make these decisions, these discretionary decisions all the time. I know we're up in arms. Some, some people saying, why wouldn't he be charged? Why shouldn't he be charged? But this is not unusual. Unfortunately, we see this every day in all sorts of cases, and some people get charged and some people don't. And that's, uh, you could argue, a serious flaw in our system, but there is no pure objective way some to make a argue, decision. Many yeah. other people would argue that's a strength, that yeah. the prosecutors are given that discretion to examine circumstances and see what where we are. Okay. Mike Leonard, this is a great conversation. Thanks John, for stopping on great by. great to be here. Great to uh, have some time with you and yeah. uh, have a good rest of the weekend. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. All right. Clint Krisloff, coming up next here on WGN. Really excited for our next guest. Going to introduce you to Clint Krisloff of Krisloff Law, and he specializes in real complex class action lawsuits. And Clint, I'm so happy you're here today because this is one area. This show's been on the air for about a year. We have not dove into the world of class action lawsuits yet. Oh, and man, it's you're about the one, time. Yeah, and you're the one to talk to about this, my friend. You have a very impressive resume and have helped a lot of people get what they deserve. So thanks for coming on the program today. Not at all. Not at all. We like to we like to look out for people's money and their their things, their stuff. Right. And you know, their services and benefits. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, I understand you have some interest in how these things occur, and well, I'm glad to answer that. Yeah, so uh, the only one I've ever been a part of was I got the Facebook check. Yep, me and, too. Hey, there you go. And uh, I was like, boy, that's easy. Uh, but I don't know how these things start. Obviously, it ends up representing a, a bunch of plaintiffs. Uh, could be, what, hundreds of thou- thousands of plaintiffs? I mean, what what's step one for a here's class action it, lawsuit? Here's, here's how it starts. Somebody calls us up out of the blue and says, you know, doesn't seem right that blah, blah, blah. Facebook uses your biometric information or mm-hmm. or the 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 cereal you've been buying has had, had a pesticide that it wasn't supposed to have or or they're charging you for an extra add on fee that doesn't seem or whatever. You know, the guy called up and said, you know, the phone company doesn't give you much time to to pay your phone bill before they charge a late charge. And we looked up and we did all this research and we found that the phone company was not sending it out with the notice that was um, evaluated evaluated by the post office. So you could confirm the date of mailing. So you had 21 days to pay your bill before they charged you a late charge. And so we sued them and, and that changed and we got a refund for people and they changed their mode of of operating, I mean, and, and we like those calls. They and come out of the blue, often from an individual, an everyday folk, oh, yeah. an everyday individual. Okay, so here's how the class case works. Yeah, in in, in short order, person calls up. We say, oh, that sounds like a good case. Like somebody called us the other day saying that that she had a Kia that was stolen and discovered that there's all this stuff about how Kias are very easy to to carjack by just 
change it by just ripping the ignition thing and and then you got a usb but it's on tiktok uh-huh. anyway so her car was stolen right and um so you know we're looking at proceeding against kia and tiktok um uh, for putting out the video uh, you know so how it starts is we get a call from somebody like that we look at the case we decide is this a case right um, or is there somebody else that can help them better that that isn't a case anyway and so we may if we think it's a good case we file the case we go to court on behalf of that person individual one person the individual one person is all it takes to start it and if you as you explain to the judge in motions there's a lot of paper right involved. um <laughs> you don't have to walk us through every piece of paper right no but the 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 criteria is are there more people than you'd want to have to go into court individually or would they not be able to go into court individually is this too small for an individual person to take individually um that's numerosity they call it is the are there common questions between the people did all the people have the same problem yes uh is this person's claim typical of all the other class members mm-hmm. and usually it is and then the fourth thing is there adequate representation for the class by this person and this lawyer. And if the judge says, okay, and it fits into one of the categories that you can do a case under, they're pretty broad in Illinois law. They're, they're a little narrower but in federal law. But the concept is once the judge agrees with you on all those, they basically give you the stamp of authority and you're off to pursue the case, not just for the individual, but certainly for the individual and for all the rest of the class members, too. So the onus is on the the, the lawyers to to prove that this is deemed necessary or deemed appropriate yes. to broaden it beyond the individual. Right. So that has to happen. It's not that you find a thousand people and bring that to court. No. You find one person and say, hey, look, this could apply to more. Right. And that's and and that that is the most efficient effective and i think elegant way to achieve justice for um lots of people in a society where companies find it's lots easier to rip you off whether it's intentionally or accidentally mm-hmm. for you know rip take a buck from 10 million people is far easier than finding the one person you can rip off for 10 million dollars right and so this is a very effective tool and we get calls on this a dozen calls a week. With really? People. Yes, because people. Um, well, they feel slighted. They feel slighted, and, and 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 they're right. Right. And there ought to be a way to get them their money back and to change the practices. Right. And so, I mean, we've done election cases. The election case where we we uh, got it invalidated to um, prohibit anybody who wasn't a registered voter in that place from being a circulator is knocked out. It's it's probably our most cited case. Every election cycle, there's somebody trying to get on the ballot somewhere that all the rest of the people want to make harder. And that case has gotten more people on the ballot. Pat Quinn called me up and, and thanked me one time for that for because it, it makes it a more democratic process. Right. I think when people hear class action lawsuit, they think of a check that someone's going to get in the mail, which I know is the end result of a lot of times. But class... Class action lawsuits in this country are some of the most important things we've had to move us constitutionally, to move us emotionally, change our democracy in many ways, too. In many ways. We, we, like, we like cases that have significant meaning and impact. 
and we have the luxury of picking the cases. And so we pick them. I like money cases because they have a discipline to them. We have cases that, you know, even if it's a lot of money, like $150 million, we can we can count it to the exact penny mm-hmm. before we even bring it. Those are great cases. But the cases where we change the world and make it fairer to everybody, um, we're very proud of all of those. Mm-hmm. And so after you've gotten that approval to bring it to this class action uh, situation, even if you're at one person, one person, then it's a matter of finding the other people, letting the public know that this might be a possibility. Is that where we then see these commercials that come up? I mean, how do you go about doing that? Okay. At that point, what happens is in the beginning, when the case gets certified, you try to give notice to everybody who's in the class. And and since you don't know all those people right. individually, you may put out notices. And that's where you see those, those notices that mm-hmm. are in the paper or whatever. But what often happens is that once the class gets certified, um, a lot of cases, like the Facebook case, mm-hmm. basically they may litigate a little further, but then they settle. Right. And so the first notice that goes out uh, winds up being the settlement notice. Mm-hmm. And that way... The class member, because this is a due process vehicle, mm-hmm. it's fundamentally one of the things that we are very strong on in our firm is making sure that class members get the due process notice so that people can't cut a side deal that, that either benefits them because the class representative can't just cut a deal for himself. I mean, right. Some people think that maybe you get a somebody calls you up and says, I'll give you a million bucks if you just settle for your for the one person, yeah. For the one person no. and go away. You can't do that. Okay. Ethically, we would not do that. Not that anybody's ever called up and right, right. made an such offer, an yeah. offer, but right. whatever. Um, typically, the first notice you get is of the settlement. And with that, you have the ability to either take the settlement, say, you know, it's not bad. I'll okay, take I'll take it, yeah. Or um, go in and explain to the court that's not a fair settlement because blah, blah, whatever. Right. You know, we object. And we have objected on a couple. Typically, um, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers don't object to other people's settlements because, you know, it makes you not everybody's best friend. Right. <laughs> um, but we have objected to settlements that we thought could be and should be improved. Okay. We we objected to a settlement years ago involving one of the Prudential Limited Partnerships, and we were able to expand the the case to cover all of the Prudential Limited Partnerships, which had been selected by kicking back to this guy who was operating uh, the, them for a Prue. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... I'll tell you what, hold this thought because yep. we've got to take a quick break. We've got to do the go news. Away. Yeah, no, Clint, you're staying right there. And by the way, if you're interested in all of this, chrisloflaw.com. Is there a phone number? Oh, yeah, 312-606-0500, right? Yep. I'm gonna give the, if we're not there, we'll take a message. Yeah, 312-606-0500. This is if you feel like you were long, wronged and if other people were too, you got to call Chris Love Law. More with Clint after the news here on WGN. Let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Uh, continuing our chat with Clint Chrislov of Chrislov Law. And he wants folks, if you're a listener out there and you feel like you've been wronged by, what, Clint, a company, a government agency, really anyone, right? Anyone. And, and the bigger, the better. We, we like <laughs> yeah. to take on big entities, usually because also they have the money to pay off if 
Well, right. And, you, you and sometimes they have the uh, sense of security that no one's going to go after them because they're the big guy. It is. They, and they do what they can to try and stack the, the hurdles against you getting there. Shocker. I can't even believe it. Crazy. Would never happen A corporation here. or a government doesn't have my best interest in heart. Uh, your, your number is 312-606-0500. Yep. 312-606-0500. Uh, before we get into a couple past cases, I do want to ask about this because – it must be fascinating to get these calls from people because it's you have no idea what call you're about to get. We love them. You right. Know, it, every day. It's, it's going to be fascinating. It's a, it's a current events quiz and a new <laughs> yeah. adventure, and it's something to be looked. And it's and it's an, it's an ever-replenishing inventory that comes in. We love them. I mean, it gives you new things to explore every day. Right. And it's the motivation that, hey— this person was wronged. I'm going to fight for this person. I know there's going to be others, too. We see, you know, the, the cases where we see changes that affect, that really affect people. I mean, it, it is great to get a $397 check. I don't doubt that. Yeah. But like city of Chicago has been sitting on checks for up to 30 years that it knew were out there and it didn't turn over. It didn't even report them to the state to uh, put it on the state's iCash website where you can you can go look for your money. In fact, we would encourage we have encouraged people to go to the iCash.IllinoisTreasurer.gov yeah. yeah. website and find look put there's, your name there's in, money. Put we've your had, money. It's we've your had money. Treasurer Ferricks on many times chatting about that program. It's a great that's a great thing, but the city has fought against reporting and there's like thirty million dollars that we found that the city was sitting on, and um, I'm so surprised. You know, and so we're we've been fighting with them to force them to to at least report it so right. that people can find it. Ultimate point I'm getting at is I feel like class action lawsuits somewhat sometimes people I don't know they sometimes can have a bad rap. It gets a bad rap. There are some cases that are just silly dumb or, cases. Yeah, They're but trivial. But what you guys do, I mean. You're fighting for little guys. You're fighting for you and me. You know, it's easier to it's easier to rip people off millions of people for a buck each than it is to find somebody to rip off for ten million dollars. Right. And and so while there's some cases that seem stupid or trivial, and some are, yeah. You know, we we try to do cases that have real impact on people's lives. It's your money. It's your stuff. Oh, and if you get a notice of a, of a settlement, whether it's ours or somebody else's, make your claim. Yes. Put yourself in, because why should, A, the the wrongdoer keep it, and B, and, and why should just some of them get just distributed among the people who make claims? So maybe you only had 39 cents, but if you get a check down the road for $39, because only one out of 10 people actually makes a claim, you know, yeah. Might as well be money you get rather than... Amen. And I just feel like in this day and age where we don't know who's calling us and we get... All, there's so many people trying to steal our identity. I think people sometimes think they're being scammed. No, take a good read we at had, it. We had a case years ago where we were covered because um, this one collection firm for Blue Cross was leaning people's big recoveries on their personal injury cases for the hospital's posted price rather than the price that they actually paid Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. And so we were finding people with tens of thousands of dollars coming back to them. And you can imagine. So there was this one woman that had $80,000. I mean, she, she had a serious injuries. Right. And she had, but she had $80,000 coming back to her. We had to chase her like we are a collection firm. To give her it. To the- give her the money because she thought. 
you know, naturally this was like a scam. We finally, you know, we we convinced you convinced her the other way. We delivered it to her in person. I appreciate people being vigilant, though, because you never know. But hey, if it's coming, you never know. Take that money. Yes. A couple cases you guys have done in the past. One out in Arizona, dealing with a, a water company. You know, it's. I know you won't believe this, but the water wastewater utility for this small county in Arizona, Pinal County, had. Uh, as the government indicted them, uh, they had bribed their way to a higher rate for their customers. I mean, who would think of that? Nothing. No utility in Illinois, <laughs> Ohio. Nothing. And New Jersey. Oh, would never do such a thing. Mm-hmm. In any event, we are. Uh, they were tried, but it was a hung jury. Mm-hmm. And they chose not to, con- not to retry him, probably because the owner of the company was 94 years old and whatever. Anyway, so we, we proceeded with the case, and we did achieve a $10.35 million settlement, which we're now in the process with the company that bought them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now in the process of distributing that money by way of credits to those people's bills I mean, and, and we're going through, I was looking at the spreadsheet yesterday, there are 40,000 customers who are going to get roughly between a, a, a half, about a half of the charges that they were overcharged, which may give many of them um, you know, a month a and break. a half credit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that, and then you don't, they don't have to do anything. It just they didn't right have to, their to account. do a thing. That's it's, good. Um, you know, in spite of the fact that going through it, you become an expert in Excel spreadsheets and and formulas for going through and apportioning things, we think we'll get all the money back to all the people. That's great. This is, uh, I know you deal with sometimes people being charged more than they should. You just referenced one. I didn't realize there was such a big case in the hair industry, in the in the world of hair. Well, years ago, um, the Mariotra Kochi firm had this thing called the ethnic hair charge, which the woman who called us, her husband had gotten her a gift certificate, and um, she was told that she would have to pay an ethnic hair charge. And I, I know this is going to shock you, but um, so anyway, we, we determined that that was probably a racially motivated charge. Mm-hmm. And actually, when we went through the case, it turned out we had to do a statistical sampling of all the people who had been subjected to the hair charge. And I know you're going to be surprised. This was determined to be 99 point something percent um, racially black customers, black customers. And and I even had to look up where one black customer or one where one customer came from. And I said, oh, that's right off the coast of Africa. So that brings us almost up to 100 percent. And so and they were charging essentially overcharging black customers under the guise of an ethnic hair charge, but they were not supposed to discriminate between those charges, but they were all applied in one way. They were all applied in one way. Mm. And it was a a higher charge for the ethnic hair charge, and it was 99% of the time Mm -hmm. a black customer, which they don't do anymore, um, or we haven't looked lately. Right, exactly. I presume they're not doing anymore. All right. Uh, and also in terms of uh, you actually have represented or, or doing a, a case involving evictions and the lawyers who would represent people in evictions. In the evictions court, you have a um, – there's a process where if you are indigent, you can get a waiver of costs. Well, then you could go out and get – you were basically representing yourself 
Mm-hmm. She couldn't find a lawyer. And there was a group, there was a lawyer, uh, Caroline Smith, actually, who had a practice representing indigents um, in eviction cases. And she contacted us. Um, she's a wonderful woman. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, it isn't the way that it's the way that they have it set up is if a lawyer then comes in, the lawyer has to be res- personally responsible for all the costs that this couldn't have, this person couldn't afford to pay. And it means that no lawyer would, would ever take it, would ever take it. And uh, we brought the case in federal court against the county and we've gotten that corrected. Um, and so now lawyers who will represent um, indigent eviction cases uh, can do so without having to incur hundreds, possibly thousands of dollars in personal expenses to and, do it. And see, that's what I'm talking about. This isn't only about a check at the end of the day, although those are great to get people the money right. that they deserve back. But I mean, like some of our most important Supreme Court decisions have been class action lawsuits. We, Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, there's a ton of them out there. There's it. it like I say, it's it's both an efficient and an elegant vehicle for getting justice that, um, you know, people sometimes abuse, I'm sure. People lots of times complain about, but when done the right way, they achieve great things that make you proud to do it. I just I just think of people that have been evicted that are in the worst straits of their life, maybe dealing with one of the most difficult situations, and what what more important time to have legal representation. And of course, not a single lawyer is going to take their case because of a stupid rule in the county, and you saying, that's not right, that deserves to be changed. Yes, and we, we, we love those changes because it, it makes us feel like we've done something significant rather than although you know people call us up and and in securities case investments or years ago um we represented a bunch of people who had what's called an esop an employee stock ownership plan that the founder of the company had developed because he wanted the company to eventually over time be owned by the employees and the greedy grandson of the founder um rigged it up so that he bought them all out for half a fair price and we went to trial and very few of these cases had tried but we were in a three-week trial where we we achieved a double valuation of their retirement benefits and we gave them got them back 20 percent i was on the board of the company for another few years until we got them a fair buyout of the rest um between and there's that's the great thing about class actions from my view we provide a vehicle and sometimes lawyers call us up and say right you know can you help us with this and we we love to have those partners on cases because they know their area of the law and we're more than happy to have them along because we it's good to have an expert in that area right hey we got to take a quick break we have a couple questions from listeners i want to throw at you oh, great we'll chat it during the break we'll do more with clint chrisloff again 312-606-0500 if you feel like you've been wronged more after this on let's get legal 720 WGN, let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Continuing our chat with Clint Chrisloff of Chrisloff Law. And we're getting some interesting questions, a lot of technical questions about class action lawsuits. Clint, someone wanted to know, what's the minimum amount of of people? Because you start with one, as we stated at the beginning. You find one person and then you ask, basically, or prove uh, that this could be broader. Once that permission is granted, then you get others. Is there a minimum right. amount? You know, different courts have a minimum at the low end with this numerosity question. Some have gone as low as 12 
but usually 40. And, you know, you could say the more the merrier, but, um, you know, cases with tens of thousands of people are are the norm. Mm-hmm. More is fine. Right. Um, the only trick becomes if you have to give notice at the beginning of the case, class counsel really has to bear those costs of giving notice, which can be substantial. Um, you know, it, it's... I think there's one as low as a dozen, but mm-hmm. we like them, and the courts like them to be more than that. Mm-hmm. 312 wanted to know, do you expect to see lawsuits related to vaccine mandates at municipal levels or against employers? Or broadly speaking, has COVID created more and interesting cases relating to class action? There are, there have been some cases. We typically don't jump in on somebody else's case because we like to, to have our own cases that mm-hmm. we don't have to, to deal, play intramurals. Uh, there are vaccine mandate cases dealing with uh, there's one against the state, there's one against United Airlines, there's one against the Chicago Police Department. There, there are a few of those cases. It's not right. It's not our. It's not our type of case. Right. Yeah. And it, I do find it interesting, though, that the world of COVID, whether it's vaccines or other things, extra charges here. I mean, like it's been a difficult couple of years for everybody, and you know, you know, there are people out there that are exploiting weaknesses in 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 the in the world post-covid right and i imagine that there will be cases that relate to something that has to do with something you know the one great thing about our system of law is that if somebody really legitimately feels that they are being wronged they have an avenue to go to and that that to me is so important that even during the covid we get really upset um we try to express it in a respectful manner to the court. But when the courts don't hold publicly Zoomable, at least, right. hearings, or when we're all back in, make it a public thing, um, people should know that the courts are there for them to pursue things with, for them to get their wrongs righted, and they need to be heard. That's the one thing that I think many judges miss the point of. They think, they thought about it, they think they came up with a fair result, and maybe they did. But if if the people don't see the judges thinking about it, listening to, seeing them listen to argument, they don't know that they've been heard. And people at bottom, they may not, they, people don't require to win every case, mm-hmm. But they want to know that they've been heard and listened to and thought over. And if you take away the the public interaction, I mean, I used to always bring my kids into court um, so they would know. And, and, you know, that it's a place, that's what the courts are there for. And that's what makes our system legitimate, viewed as legitimate or illegitimate. And so I would encourage judges to have publicly at least publicly zoomable hearings mm-hmm. as much as possible. Six three zero texted in saying that they were part of a class action lawsuit dealing with a health violation by a company. The check was nice, but knowing that we had fought the big guy was even better. You know, knowing that you fought the big guy and you'd gotten a change is often the the real thing. I mean, we um, we caution our class representatives. Not to say we're not in for the money, we're in it for the principal, because what then happens is the people on the other side says, well, they really don't have a stake in this. Right. They're just voicing their opinion. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is that, that the class representative, while they are looking for the, their own recovery, and must, mm-hmm. and looking for a recovery for everybody else, they're really, I'm sure the motivation behind most of them is to make things better. Mm-hmm. 630 wanted to know, did you have to go to through special training to be a class action lawyer? Is it the same law school? That's an interesting question. So I went trial to, by fire. Trial by fire. I went to I went to Cornell Law School, and then I I got out and I joined a big firm as an associate in their tax department, really, because it was the one place in a big firm in that big firm where I could do both litigation and deal work and stuff. And so, um, because the the litigators didn't think tax litigation was real litigation, and the tax <laughs> people didn't know that the litigators could understand the tax laws really well. And so I got this great variety of civil and criminal cases, um, of cases, that, of deals that, you know, the first tax case I had was with what, what was called the Oriental Theater. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and its allocation of, of tax bases. But the experience in tax cases gave me an appreciation of the discipline and the complexity of numbers cases that are often glossed over by everybody else and it set me well for so how i got into this was you got a minute for this yeah yeah just about okay so the the this guy called me up from another big from another big firm after i had left started my own little firm Uh he said you know the city is late in paying over its its pension taxes to the pension funds there are people who would like to see it speeded up but our firm doesn't want to have anything to do with it because retribution from the city is certain if not swift right and so clint i thought of you because nobody else wanted to do this but you're not from here you don't have any city business you have no chance of getting any city business so you have nothing to lose and <laughs> that's quite a so, flattering way to say that you know so so <laughs> next thing i know a retiree shows up on my doorstep with 60 dollars. guy named martin ryan we sue the city and we discover that the city is in is taking the money in investing it in overnight deposits at the continental bank um, some of you are old enough to have heard of them, uh-huh. and then keeping the money, keeping the profits when they turned it over later at the end of the year. And so we got like a $35 million. And the pensioners should have gotten it. The people well, it should have gone to their pension funds. funds. I know this will shock you, but their pension funds were underfunded, underfunded. Oh, even then. Wow. And then the city turned around and cut off the retirees from their health care coverage. And we have been litigating that, litigating that case on behalf of all the city retirees off and on since literally 1987. And we're still there's still like 10,000 of the city retirees who were promised lifetime health care coverage because they wouldn't qualify for Medicare and don't. Um, and so, you know, these are cases that are meaningful. Anyway, that's what got me into this. 312 says... Pensions, dealing with water, trusting companies. I think sometimes people are a little too trusting of the big institutions and the big companies that they do have their best interests at heart. It's nice and refreshing to hear someone say, maybe they don't. That's nice to hear. Isn't and, that? And, you know, and, and the best thing that we've got out there are people like three, that 312 person keeping an eye out for that stuff and alerting us when something like that happens. And we love to pursue those. Yep. And so we, you know, Call 312-606-0500 anytime. If, if we're not there, we'll take a message and we'll call you back. That's where I was going to. Chris Law, 
0500 chrisloflaw.com that's k r i s l o v law.com clint it was great to meet you i look forward to our next chat okay me too me too can't wait all right that'll just about do it for let's get legal here on 720 wgn we'll be back again next saturday at one o'clock and i'll be back on monday for your money matters at 6 p.m with a mesero monday takeover have a great rest of the weekend everybody